All right. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening to another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together, you and I, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, OGs, those who truly understand the space, those who can explain to us what's going on. We want to learn a lot. We want to hear some really cool stories, and we want to truly understand how this movement came to be and, and how we ended up here through this, like, you know, some sort of chaos or organized chaos almost 12 or 13 years later. Um, it's really exciting, and I'm very honored and pleased to have uh, a guest today join us that's going to teach us a lot about all different sorts of things. Jesse Pollock, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Awesome. Thanks, Charlie, for having me. Super excited to be here. You're the Senior Director of Engineering, working on protocols at Coinbase. You're working on all sorts of public goods, cities, currencies, and all these different things. Um, you have worked all over the different company for a long time. And, you know, I would say that if you had like four pillars of the industry, Coinbase is one of them, you know, as a founding member of, of, of USDC as well, which as we know has been overtaking Tether slowly, uh, the Coinbase and, and its companies around it and its ecosystem has really uh, constantly trailblazed in terms of what we use now and knowing what the demand will be in the future. So I'm kind of really excited about that. Um, I want to talk about like DeFi and all these different things. Well, first of all, how's your week going? My week is going well. Yeah, it's been a good week. I, uh, I spend half my time on the East Coast and half my time on the West Coast. And so today is uh, one of my last days on the East Coast and tomorrow I'm moving back to the West Coast. Um, and so uh, looking forward to a little bit of change, a little bit of cooler weather in the Bay Area. Do you do, you do it on like a, a system where it's it's pre like you do pre book all your flights a year out. So you know what your schedule is going to be, or is it just back and forth as you need to uh, more back and forth as I need to. My uh, partner is in school in the, in the East coast. And so we moved out here about a year ago. And so I, I generally go back to the West coast for, you know, like a month long chunk. And that probably happens once every couple months, but it's just in time. Uh, you know, I book flights uh, maybe a month out. Yeah. That's back in the day. You can do that nowadays. I'm noticing that the closer and closer I'm booking flights, the more expensive they are. It's just getting ridiculous at this point. It really is. This trip was a painful trip. I like booked the flights a few weeks ago, and I was like, "Wow, something something is going wrong uh, in in our world," and it's showing up in the the flight prices. I'm I'm actually traveling next week, and I'm nervous. I, I'm only booking directs now. Like even if the if the airport is farther away from where I'm going, I have to drive three hours. I just don't want to deal with. It seems like layovers are where the biggest biggest issue is. Yep. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing as well. So did you grow up in the in the Bay Area? And is that where you first kind of like touched? Was it was it crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum for the first time? How did you first touch our industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually grew up in D.C., uh, Washington, D.C., spent the first 18 years of my life there and then moved out to L.A. and did two years of college uh, outside of L.A. and then dropped out of school to start a company. Um, and I actually had my first taste of crypto uh, in college uh, when I met kind of randomly Olaf Carlson Wee, um, which I we can tell that story if you're interested. Um, but that was kind of my intro to, to crypto. And then uh, the way I really got deep in it is the company I started right out of college. Um, we built identity and security software that helped people log into websites. And pretty quickly, we realized that 
Um, crypto had some of the highest usability and security needs around login. And so we ended up working with a lot of crypto companies back in 2013, 2014, folks like BitMEX and uh, Bitfinex uh, way back in the day, providing kind of login security solutions. And so that was what the thing that really got me. Uh, it was called Clef. Uh, uh, we built passwordless oh, login yeah. uh, built on like public key infrastructure. There was this cool wave thing. You held up your phone to a computer. Uh, to I remember in. that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. You, lo- you log in a bunch of crypto sites. That's how you log in. Why did that go away? Um, why did it go away? I, the business didn't work. You know, I think that we were probably a little bit ahead of our time. You know, we were using public key infrastructure in the same way that uh, you know, people are starting to use Ethereum public key infrastructure for um, login today, but we were doing it back in 2013, 2014. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the the kind of platform that enabled that to be really smooth wasn't really built out. And so we were doing it all ourselves. Uh, we were a small team. Uh, and ultimately, you know, we couldn't get the business to work at the scale that it needed to. And so in kind of late 2016, um, we decided to kind of wind down the company. We went through the whole aqua hire process. Um, a few different companies made offers to acquire us, and that's that's how I ended up at Coinbase. That's a very smart idea that that company's been doing is has been acquiring, aqua hiring, you know, talent and and companies over the years. That's how it's kind of maintained its its competitive edge. But the um, I wanted to jump on this topic about public key infrastructure because it kind of goes back a long time pre crypto, and I feel like if you, if if we can understand how public and private keys work and how it will, you know, potentially power like this Web3 and how it was the basis of, of mm-hmm. crypto and Bitcoin and and going back to like pre-PGP. I mean, is that where is that where public like the idea of like we have a I have a private key and I give you my public key and then you can encrypt something? Is that was PGP like the first time that was invented? Uh, I don't know if it was the first time it was invented, um, but I think PGP and, and for those who are listening in, PGP is a way that people have, or, or yeah, a tool that lets people encrypt their emails, um, uh, kind of running on top of the traditional email uh, services that you generally use. Um, I think that was probably the first attempt at making kind of like public key infrastructure used for encryption and security really mainstream from a, a thing that consumers were using day to day. Um, like everyday people, I don't think PGP ever really got the adoption that it needed to to, to succeed. But um, I think before PGP, th- there are definitely examples of public key infrastructure, um, uh, you know, powering parts of our underlying experiences. So, for instance, all of HTTPS, like the secure way we browse the internet with privacy, is built on public key infrastructure. And and maybe just for for those who don't know, the the concept of public key infrastructure is. If you think about a password, and this is the way most of y'all are, are used to logging into websites, um, the way that works is you have a password, uh, you give it to a website, they hold that password, you hold the password. Website can do things to uh, store that password in a more secure way, but there's uh, there's all sorts of downstream privacy and security impacts. The, the idea of public key password, you have a public key and a private key. Uh, you know, uh, encryption mechanism, you can basically sign a message with your private key that allows you to authenticate yourself to the person who has your public key. And so today, we're seeing that used for pretty much all of crypto, right? Like when you sign an Ethereum transaction or a Bitcoin transaction, you're signing that transaction with 
your private key. And then people can verify that that transaction came from you using kind of your public key, which is the address that, that uh, is attached to that private key and is attached to your identity and your wallet. Um, we were using that same idea of having a public and private key back in 2013, 2014. And we kind of built our own infrastructure for doing that and letting people log in with it. And it seems like that it was a key part of how Bitcoin was invented and how kind of all cryptocurrencies work now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, without that kind of like model of, of uh, public key infrastructure, um, yeah, like crypto wouldn't really be a thing. So it definitely builds on a long history of, of people building that that kind of system. And what do you, you know, right now we're in this, you know, getting down to like a very timely question here. We're, we're in this maybe pivot between bear market or where are we in this in this bear market so people are looking at prices but a lot of the kind of like the the fat was trimmed away in our space and a lot of the the the, the recycleness and the, and the the nothingness uh has kind of been uh we can see now more what people are actually using cryptos for mm-hmm. and how they're engaging with metaverses and DAOs and different type of of, of art communities and music and uh it's like it's almost like you need these washouts to help us see what direction we're going in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the uh, you know one of the mantras at, at Coinbase is that uh, like now is the best time to be building. Um, and I think that that's really the truth. And I think what we're seeing, and one of the things that gets me really excited is this moment in time, you know, 2022 bear market, um, it feels really different than the 2018, 2019 one. And I think the, the reason it feels really different is, is or there's two reasons. One is the, the level of uh, real use cases that are happening in crypto right now is just an order of magnitude bigger. You know, back in 2018, 2019, really the only thing that people were doing was like crypto kitties. Uh, and that was like a very early NFT experiment. Today, people are doing, uh, you know, stablecoin transfers. That's a massive use case. The, the growth of stablecoins and the growth of, of the use of stablecoins has, has been consistent throughout this whole market. Um, NFTs, there's now, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands NFT of NFT collections that people are um, starting to, or not starting, that are people are trading and collecting and, you know, having a part of their identity on a day-to-day basis. Um, uh, financial infrastructure, things like Uniswap that enables, uh, you know, on-chain trading or a compound that enables on-chain lending. You know, those those protocols in this kind of market downturn that's happened, they've held up incredibly well, while I think a lot of the, you know, maybe more web two type crypto things haven't held up as well. And so I think the first part is, uh, there's just a ton of real utility in crypto that exists today um, that, that I think makes it super exciting. The, the second thing that I think feels really different about this time versus the 2018, 2019, is it feels like there's probably 10 to, a hundred times as many people here building together. Um, just the level of talent that has poured into the industry over the last few years is incredible. I feel like every way I look, there's just someone who is building something awesome and who has an incredible amount of uh, like expertise, either in crypto or in some other adjacent domain to crypto that they're now applying in the context of crypto and Web3. And so I think for me, what, what that really makes me feel is like, this is, it, it's not just like every other bear market in the past where we had to put our heads down and build uh, and we were just gonna like look towards the future and be like, oh, one day it's gonna come. It really feels like now is it's, it's here. Like we're, we're building, the markets will do what the markets will do. There will always be markets, but the opportunity for us to really be creating the future is like, it's right now. 
Um, and it feels incredibly exciting. So you're seeing people and, and are you guys basically rebuilding everything that we're doing now that we've been, how we've been using the internet over the last 20 years, at least rebuilding on this new, you know, blockchain or public private key infrastructure type thing. What, what excites you the most? Like, what are you seeing? Are, are, are you looking more towards like virtual worlds? Are you looking at, mm. like you said, the financial aspects of something like Uniswap and lending? And I mean, we cover everything on the show. I'm just curious what excites yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, the things that I'm really excited about is the, the trend that we're seeing where users and businesses are starting to um, live more of their day-to-day -day lives fully on chain. Um, and I think like, if I think about where that trend is gonna go, my belief is that over the next five years, everything is gonna move on chain. So your, your money will be on chain, uh, your social activity will be on chain, uh, you know, your connections will be on chain, uh, your credentials will be on chain. Um, and that will happen for you as an individual, but then it will also happen for businesses. Um, you know, they'll, uh, you know, accept payments on chain, uh, they'll do their accounting on chain, uh, they'll have their equity on chain. Um, and I think what that transition is going to enable is it's going to enable people to uh, leverage what is a incredibly powerful platform that's starting to emerge. And so rather than every business needing to figure out, oh, like, how do we piece together all these kind of uh, legacy janky systems to do certain things that we need, they'll be able to have access to an open source platform of services that are automatically available to them, powered by crypto. Um, same thing with users, you know, rather than needing to say, oh, I have my identity in uh, Facebook and I have my identity in Twitter and I have my identity in uh, Google, you're going to be able to have your single on-chain identity that's going to give you access to a Facebook-like experience and a Twitter-like experience and a Google-like experience. And so I think that trend of people bringing more of their lives on-chain and then on-chain enabling people to have uh, more control and more re reusability, which leads to better tools, systems, products, is the thing that, that most excites me. I mean, on one side, it seems like there's a huge embracing of that grand theft auto announced that they're going to be i mean grand theft auto is 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 literally de defines the video game world nowadays i mean i can't <laughs> wait for the next grand theft auto 6 i've been playing them since i was a kid you know we all grew up on on some of these video games like doom etc and and so there all these companies are announcing you know some integration in the crypto world but then like i saw this morning about minecraft right saying that <laughs> there's gonna be no nft or crypto experience at all like i don't get it i usually try to understand everything but i don't get it yeah yeah you know i think that whenever there's like massive structural change especially at the kind of like lowest levels of our of our world um there's gonna be resistance there's gonna be fear there's gonna be uncertainty um and people are gonna want to reject that change and i think People are going to see the, the maybe negative parts of the change, the scary parts of the change. Um, and that's going to be the thing that they react to rather than um, uh, the positive parts. And I think with time, um, you know, the, the thing that will happen is like the, the platforms that provide value to people in the world are going to be the ones that, um, you know, are lo long lived and stick around. And so, you know, I saw the Minecraft thing. I thought it was funny. They were like, you know, we're not going to allow NFTs, which are primarily bought with Bitcoin, where if it's like anyone who buys NFTs knows that they're not primarily bought with Bitcoin, which I think was an interesting, uh, maybe like Freudian slip into, you know, how knowledgeable they were about NFTs generally. But I, my general feeling is like, look, if, if Minecraft doesn't want to allow NFTs, that's fine. That's a decision Minecraft can make. And I expect that over time, um, 
either they'll realize, hey, there's like a huge opportunity for us to let our players have um, more control over the things that they're building in our product, which to me seems like a totally great thing. Um, or if they don't do that and NFTs and crypto continues to be this incredibly powerful platform, someone will build the open, interoperable, community-owned, NFT-enabled version of Minecraft, and that thing will win on its merits. And I think that um, market place dynamic of letting the, the platform of crypto and letting the product built on that platform win on their merits is, you know, is what's going to happen. It's healthy and it's good. And so I try and just kind of tune out the, the noise on the, the people saying, hey, like this isn't going to work for us. Sure. Someone needs to show them the like screenshot of PayPal not accepting Bitcoin 10 years ago and then PayPal embracing yeah. PayPal. Just avoid <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's a process. It's a process. Yeah, I mean, of course. It's, it's remarkable to think about how far how far we've come, you know, like three years ago, four years ago, like none of the big companies were embracing crypto and Bitcoin. Now like Facebook has NFTs, um, you know, like the big, some of the big gaming companies are starting to take it really seriously, even if Minecraft isn't. Um, I, I feel like we've made a huge amount of progress and I, I think that's only going to accelerate. Sure. A lot of, a lot of companies actually wait for these moments when a lot of the froth disappears to see like peek behind the curtain and see what's really going on before they jump in. They want to make smart decisions. And now after, you know, especially after the past few months, the last six months, I would say uh, very difficult six months for a lot of people. Um, now it's like, okay, where do we go from here? Yep. Yep. I think that's exactly right. Um, so on that note of like going back in time, Ethereum, when Ethereum launched, and I, I remember very, very vividly a lot of those moments, but when Ethereum launched, it, even today, even on an extended timeline, it's still stuck to like what its roadmap originally intended to do. The proof mm. of work, proof of stake difficulty bomb, you know, we all thought it was going to happen years ago. It's happening soon. There's been a lot of flurry of announcements lately, uh, early September, um, all these different things merges, you know, maybe we'll see finally like an Ethereum proof of stake, this, this hard fork major merge up that's been happening for a long time. When Ethereum first launched, I don't think the people in the community behind it predicted a world in which other blockchains were like chomping at Ethereum's bit. Do you mm. think that's mm -hmm. changed its viewpoint on anything? I mean, like not like Ethereum's like the supernatural being, but the community. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely a different time. Like when Ethereum launched in what was it, 2014, 2015, it was, it was really the only like actually viable smart contract platform. And there weren't that many other things competing with it in, in any serious way. And now today, you know, there's a whole meme around all L1s, um, uh, you know, Solana, Avalanche, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think, I think that it's like, you know, the rise of, of kind of other smart contract platforms has, has applied a healthy amount of, you know, pressure to Ethereum in the community where it's like, hey, like, it, it's clear that in order to, you know, kind of uh, maintain and secure the position as the, the leading settlement layer and smart contract platform, a, a lot needs to be done to lowering fees um, in terms of making it more accessible to users, uh, in terms of increasing speed and, and security. Um, so I think that, I think that's healthy. I think competition is a good thing. Um, at the same time, I think one of the things I've been most impressed with is um, the community's uh, like refusal to cut corners. Um, and, and I think the, the most common corners we see being cut are around decentralization um, or around uh, you know risk from a security or technical perspective. 
And I think if you look at the way that Ethereum um, and the, the kind of core devs and the whole Ethereum community has, has conducted itself, the, those corners haven't been cut there, right? They've pr prioritized decentralization, uh, a kind of uh, not, uh, yeah, they've pri prioritized decentralization really, really seriously. So for instance, um, there are five Ethereum clients that need to be changed in order to make any change. That means that no one single team has control over the Ethereum network and how it runs and the clients and that's that the most important it. thing. Um, right, it's super important, right? They've made it uh, possible for uh, anyone to run a validator on commodity hardware, you know, unlike a lot of other chains that, you know, require really high, high, you know, CPU requirements um, and, and make it much more expensive to run a validator. So I think on the, the decentralization side, that's been like a, a, a real thing that the, the community is stuck to. And I think that's super important. And then on the security and, um, uh, kind of technical risk side, I think like if you look at the way they've approached this merge upgrade, it, it's definitely taken longer than they they expected and then that, that people wanted. But the the level of diligence and thoroughness to the way they are making this change is just incredible, right? Like before we do the merge actually on the main chain uh, in September, um, we will have done four, I think, incredibly well-planned um, merges on the test nets, all of which were very well studied, um, which we kind of learned from and made changes as a result of. We also will have done something like 15 to 25 shadow merges on the main chain, which are basically simulations on the main chain that give us a bunch of data around um, what is happening. And then there, are, there have been two years of like really intense designing uh, you know, uh, ad adjusting the path that we were taking, solving hard research problems to enable those tests and finally the merge in the first place. And so I think that level of like methodicalness means that as we're getting closer to the merge, people aren't uh, coming up to the merge and being like, ooh, it's really risky. Like we're going to do this thing and there's a chance that the chain's going to stop or a chance that the, you know, something's going to get double spend or that there's going to be a security edge. I think people are feeling like, no, we have been, relentlessly methodical. We have been thorough. We have made sure that when we flip this switch, we are confident that it's gonna work. And I think for a platform like Ethereum, which is increasingly the settlement layer for the crypto economy um, uh, and the apps that are being built on top of it, that level of um, diligence and depth is super, super important. And so I think that combination of focus on decentralization and then incredible technical thoroughness um, has been, uh, really great to see, even with the pressure and the, the feeling of urgency around continuing to kind of improve the technology. Yeah, because smart scaling is better than fast scaling, right? Right, exactly. You know, and I think uh, if, if Ethereum had rushed out uh, uh, a merge that didn't work or had a major risk um, six months ago, and then we'd gone into, you know, this market downturn, like, what would people have said? They would have said Ethereum rushed it. And now I actually feel like, you know, it's this incredible moment where, yes, the markets have turned a little bit and the like march of Ethereum is just relentless. And we're going to do what I think is one of the most significant, challenging, um, important uh, technical upgrades in the history of humankind um, on the Ethereum network, which is a, you know, multi hundred billion dollar network that's powering um, so much of the crypto economy. Um, and it's going to go smoothly. You think there'll be like miners that want to stick around and, and continue like that mineable Ethereum chain as we saw with, uh, I mean, oh my God, over the years, I've seen this so many times. Yeah. 
yeah, we've seen it. You know, we saw it with yeah. um, Bitcoin Cash splitting off from from Bitcoin. Um, I think I think that there might be some sm- some small segment of miners that that want to do that. I think one of the things that makes that um, a lot harder in um, Ethereum than in kind of the Bitcoin world back even in 2017, although the Bitcoin world is different today, is there's a lot of state that lives in Ethereum that is tied to things that actually exist in the real world. And so, for instance, um, you know, USDC, it's a $60 billion issuance on chain. There's $60 billion of cash dollars in bank accounts somewhere in the real world. When Ethereum does the merge, um, uh, like that cash is only going to back one of the chains. You know, it's only going to back yeah. the main Ethereum chains, USDC. And so if a miner were to say, hey, we want to keep running this um, version of Ethereum uh, that uses proof of work, they would then have to answer the question of like, okay, but like, what about all the USDC balances on that chain? What happens to them? Do they go to zero? And then what are the cascading effects on all of the other products and services that have been built on top of those balances? And then, um, you know, continue all those continue tokens. On. Yeah. And so I think it's, uh, I'll be curious to see if there's uh, a kind of like fork in that structure, but my sense is that it's a pretty different um, reality given the, just the, like the, the real world integration of Ethereum um, into other parts of, of our society. Um, yeah. Oh man. I, that's going to be a fun holiday season. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of token. Hopefully it doesn't happen in the holiday season. Fingers crossed we can get it done in September. Because I think the thing for me is, you know, this the merge is is not the panacea. The merge is one step in what is a, you know, you know, long and important roadmap that's ahead for for Ethereum. You know, the thing that I'm most excited about uh, following the merge, two things. Well, one is just uh, enabling withdrawals, which will allow people to access their uh, staked funds on Ethereum, which I just think is important for the health of the ecosystem. We've seen how uh, kind of uh, having locked funds can impact uh, the overall health of the crypto economy uh, with the whole kind of stake ETH thing that's happened over the last six months. So that's one thing I'm excited for um, in the kind of next upgrade after the merge. But the other thing that I'm really excited for is something called EIP4844, which stands for Ethereum Improvement Proposal 4844. Um, And it's a upgrade to the Ethereum network that will um, reduce the cost of layer twos on Ethereum, uh, like Arbitrum or Optimism or Polygon ZK rollups um, by a factor of 10 to 100x. Um, So right now, Optimism, Arbitrum, those cost around 30 to 50 cents to do a swap. Um, uh, similar to do a kind of movement of funds like Ethereum. Um, and after that, that cost will drop somewhere between, you know, uh, one cent and five cents. And I think from a usability perspective, from, a, you know, bringing on the, the masses in, into crypto, that kind of scaling change and, and the ability to support lower costs on those um, L2 rollups is super, super important. And so actually at Coinbase, um, we've been working with some of the, uh, L2 rollup teams to uh, contribute to that uh, EIP 4844 effort um, and make sure that it's you know moving as quickly as can we, as it can so that we can get people onto a platform that works for them from a cost perspective. But the question is how, right? Like scaling, I, and I'm not my my education level is out of five when it comes to scaling technologies out of ten. But how, as far as I understand, like how do you give up decentralization? for 
for for to have faster and cheaper mm-hmm. fees like being a bitcoiner for so long and i'm a decentralization maximalist i'm not by one coin or any of the other i just i'll call out cryptos that claim to be decentralized totally. uh, and there are scams in the end you know are not like we've seen them being taken down by governments thankfully but but at the end of the day like how do you how do you maintain ethereum's level of decentralization where we're comfortable holding our billions in usdc knowing that no one party can come and you know take that away or freeze it or something like that yeah it's a great question and i think the the strategy for ethereum uh, and this was actually a strategic shift from a scaling perspective that happened about a year and a half ago is rather than trying to scale the the kind of main l1 ethereum chain um which i think would probably require compromises on decentralization um uh the 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 strategy has shifted to let's make that chain stay as decentralized as possible and then scale by adding in a layer two of rollups which are basically chains that run uh, and are secured by the decentralized network of ethereum and inherit all the security of ethereum but can move the actual execution of the transactions um, off of the main chain. Um, And that allows them basically to get the best of both worlds where they can run a lot more transactions much more quickly at lower costs um, and then roll those up to the Ethereum level so that those transactions are still secured by Ethereum. And I think um, that that doesn't mean that uh, immediately every transaction on Ethereum is going to get cheaper. Uh, it requires people to move their funds onto the L2. It requires people to deploy their applications onto the L2. But it allows us to, in many ways, get the best of both worlds where we can have these environments, these execution layers, as we, we've come to call them at Coinbase, that uh, do provide that kind of really high scalability um, while preserving the decentralization and security and using it in those execution layers. Okay, so the, the security and stability of the chain is is the same but essentially what happens and, and tell me tell me how I'm wrong because I'm trying to make an analogy out of it. It creates it creates almost like how much security and decentralization do you want? It almost creates like speed lanes where you can do a cup of coffee transaction, but the application that's doing that does it in some like roll up fashion or settles it later. But if you're purchasing a house or doing some large transaction, you can choose to have it, you know, in the next block almost immediately. Yeah, that's that's a great, great analogy. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's incredibly powerful about it is the the, the coding language, the, the software platform that people will use to um, write applications on those L2s is exactly the same as on the main Ethereum chain. And so that means that if you have you know, Uniswap, which is like a series of contracts deployed on L1, you can deploy it on the L2 and that's exactly what they've done. Um, And so there's no rebuilding or re-implementing that needs to happen in order to get the the kind of logic over, which allows a ton of um, reuse, composability, and basically all of those uh, environments to grow kind of at the same pace and to, uh, you know, feed off of each other and accelerate each other because they're using this common platform, even as they provide different levels of speed and security. So we have Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then everything else. Will the everything else have to go through the same scaling pains that Ethereum does now? Is, is Are they just simply faster and cheaper now because not as many people are using it? Yeah, I, I think generally, yes. Um, you know, like there's the kind of classic, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think yes. <laughs> it, <the, laughs> okay, I, I agree it, with it, you it, a lot of the time. 
it's it's easy to it's easy to have a scalable cheap uh, blockchain when there's not a ton of usage on it um, and when there's not a ton of um, history on it as well um, because actually like the length of the blockchain and how long it's been running is the thing that contributes to to scalability and speed um, and so my sense is that all blockchains face the same challenges around um, how do you have decentralization speed and security and people call those three things kind of the the blockchain trilemma um, where you can't have all three of them, um, decentralization, speed, and security. And so I think all blockchains will go through some process of reckoning with that um, as they grow and scale and have to figure out where they're willing to make compromises. You know, for Ethereum, um, they, they said, hey, we are not willing to compromise on decentralization. We are not willing to compromise on security. We are willing to say, we're not going to be maybe the fastest. We're not going to be maybe the cheapest. And the way we're going to solve that instead is by supporting this growth of layer twos kind of building on top of our decentralization and security to allow them to go really fast. Um, I think other blockchains are gonna have to answer the same questions. And some of them might say, hey, we're actually willing to choose speed and security, or we're willing to choose speed and decentralization. I think this the speed and decentralization probably isn't gonna work as much because then it's not gonna be secure and people aren't gonna trust the blockchain that's not secure. I think the, the choice of speed and security at the cost of decentralization is the, the, the choice that a lot of other kind of uh, alt L1s are making today. Um, I think we'll see, you know, like how valuable is decentralization? I think my thesis is that um, it's incredibly valuable. It is the thing that enables everyone to be building on this platform and to have confidence that's not gonna change out from under them. Um, to have confidence that the things that they build are gonna last forever to have confidence that when they build something, um, the platform's not going to kind of like disintermediate them. And I think the way I think about decentralization is it's almost a, a, a new form of gravity in the crypto economy. If you think Ooh. about the, the, the kind of pre-crypto world, uh, I feel like there was actually a gravity of centralization where capital was this thing that basically said, hey, the more capital you have, the more centralized you are, the more you're able to do. And in Web3, because we have this new underlying platform of Ethereum that's decentralized, Ethereum and Bitcoin, I feel like that's actually this gravity that basically pulls on everything that's built underneath it. And it basically tears apart the centralized things and makes them decentralized. I think that's a really, really healthy thing for the Web3 economy, but also for our world. Because ultimately, decentralization is this incredible thing that gives people sovereignty. It gives them autonomy. It allows them to, um, you know, live their best lives uh, and collaborate with each other, which I think is the kind of brilliance of, of crypto. And I feel like having that at the base layer, at the Ethereum layer, at the Bitcoin layer, is the thing that allows it to exist in every other layer on top of it. So from my perspective, it's it's the most important thing that we really need to be pushing for. It's actually, it's like a double entendre, right? It's like the gravity, but it's also the gravity of it. Like how, why you're yeah. so important. Yeah, it's great. A title, that's the name. Of, I'm going to title the show. Thank you. Just help me do some work. The gravity of decentralization. I think it, it's very important. It, it's everything. It's the reason. It's the the first few words that Satoshi wrote were, was about the gravity of decentralization. Like that's why we're all 100%. here in the first place. So thank you for like teaching me a lot about that because I, I I'm uh, excited to know that that's kind of the direction that we're going. I was sold on this like idea of purpose built driven purposely built driven, sorry, purposely driven built blockchains that 
you'd have all these different chains for different things, but it seems like we're still in like a Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then everything else world that mm. are more niche. So I'm wondering where that mm. kind of goes. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I, I might go a little bit galaxy brain here, but I've increasingly been thinking about the way this will develop as um, rather than kind of multiple chains that have multiple um, that are totally separate and have like per- separate purposes. It's that we will have layers of chains that serve different purposes. And so the the first layer, the L1, this is the kind of Ethereum Bitcoin, that is the what I call settlement layer, which is kind of the layer that provides the decentralization and security to enable every other layer and basically serve as the underlying settlement function in the economy. So that's the first layer. The, the second layer, uh, and this is what we've been talking about with rollups and L2s, is what we think about as the execution layer. And I think our hypothesis is this execution layer, this is kind of where all of the global uh, transactions in our economy are actually gonna happen um, because it's gonna be cheaper. It's gonna uh, have more speed, um, but it's gonna inherit the security and the decentralization of the layer one. And so I think that will be this kind of global platform that anyone will transact in where we'll all be sending money to each other and making payments, et cetera, et cetera. The, the way I think about those purpose-built blockchains is that those are going to start to be the L3, which is that basically when you have L1 and L2 and they're built with the same tools and they have the same interfaces and people are building this incredible developer toolkit to deploy on them, it's going to be easy for us to say, hey, okay, I don't need this to be in the global execution layer, but I still need to have some logic that's custom to me. You know, maybe it's like for my application or for my specific use case. And I'm actually going to write that in the same language, same toolkit as the layer one execu- uh, settlement layer and the layer two uh, execution layer, and then run it with slightly different security parameters. So maybe I say, hey, I'm going to secure this network and people who transact on it will know that I'm securing it and we'll provide a bridge so that they can move money in from the layer two execution layer. So I think... From my perspective, um, it's not going to be silos. Instead, it's going to be almost like a layer cake where you have the base layer that provides the security of the second layer, which provides the execution. And then you have the third layer where people start to build those kind of application or purpose uh, built uh, functions and in, in, in blockchains. I mean, this is really changing kind of the way that I've been thinking about it for a long time. And I totally understand. It's like you could be a very specific company, like you could be a... Uh, a, a trucking logistics company, and you can choose to build your own permission chain where maybe each token represents one of your truckers, and then you mm-hmm. optimize it for how your business needs to be run over decades. You know what I mean? Like that's what you build it for. Yep. And why would that need to be like an open chain for everyone? Why would that need to be something that, I mean, back in the day, that would be an ICO right there. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. And you can build that. But then I think the, the the powerful thing about building that as like almost a layer three is that you use the same tools that you would do uh, use to, to build on layer two. And there's the same interfaces between your chain and the layer two and layer one. So that means if you need to say, have money in your little private world, you can use that interface to bring money in. Um, I think that composability, the ability for all those things to use the same tools and to interface and talk to each other is going to be incredibly important for making it easier for people to build these sorts of applications. How do you feel about 
kind of like jumping to a different topic. How do you feel about like the culture in the moment? So, so this, this Ethereum merge, it, sh it will be a very positive thing for the overall crypto space. Maybe you'll see a few like Bitcoin maximalists kind of like, ha, 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 be annoying about it on crypto Twitter. But other than that, this is going to be a very positive thing. Um, how do you feel about, about our, our culture right now? Do you, do you feel it's like necessary? We we passed that moment where it's like, well, everyone's using the internet now, so why do we need internet conferences anymore? I've had I've had uh, guests argue this point. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't think we're quite there yet. I think that there's still like a valuable subculture in crypto that's kind of pushing pushing it forward. I think the the cultures that I'm most drawn to in crypto are the ones that are um, collaborative and oriented around solving like hard collective action problems. Um, ultimately, like I think that there's going to be a bunch of different tools we can use to, to solve those collective action problems. But the most important thing is figuring out what tools actually allow us to come together as humans, uh, as organizations to do that work in collaboration. And so I think, you know, anytime I'm seeing people like dunk on each other or put people down um, or be negative about the work that other folks are doing, um, that's, that's, that feels like antithetical to what crypto is all about to me. Crypto is all about having uh, uh, all of us come together to build a new economic software governance platform for the world that all of us contribute to, all of us own a part of, um, and all of us get to work on top of to build better and better things. And so the, 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 the groups of people who are thinking in that way and who are coming together to create that reality is the, the, the cultures that I'm drawn to. Um, and I think it's it's exciting to see. I, I feel like more and more that, that the community is trending in that direction. Um, I feel like every day there's less maximalism, there's less uh, kind of like sides, and there's more people working together to build the future. Yeah, we're growing up. We're growing up. You know, <laughs> we're now 12 years old, so I think we've uh, whatever. Yeah, like 13 years old. So we're like just exiting our horrible middle school years. Uh, which are probably yeah. the worst. Coinbase is a huge part of that culture. There's a, there's always a presence of, of of Coinbase or one of the companies at, at at all the conferences. I was just at Consensus. It was a lot of fun. There's always and I think it's really important. I think it reminds me of like kind of the reasons that that you know like our shared beliefs and ideology of why we all got into this. And I got into Bitcoin and crypto to, to, for friends. Like that that was how I <laughs> fell into the rabbit hole. So maybe I'm a little bit biased in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I totally agree that Coinbase is a, a huge part of it, and um, I've been really excited to see Coinbase get even more, I think, involved over the last year or so um, in the broader community. Um, you know, making our first big contributions to to Ethereum, um, funding public goods in Ethereum, uh, sponsoring Bitcoin Core developers. Um, I, I think that Thank you over for all that. like yeah. 2021, 2022, I think Coinbase has really started to shift to invest more actively in in, in this these communities and in the underlying infrastructure. Cause at the end of the day, um, without strong Bitcoin, Ethereum and other platforms, Coinbase is nothing. Um, and I think it's that collective action of companies like Coinbase, um, uh, Circle, uh, FTX, Finance, who, whoever it is, name it, uh, coming together and saying, there's something bigger than us as a company. And it's this platform that we are all building together. I think, I think that that's the most important thing. You saw like um, Shapeshift, you know, change their company to become a full DAO? Do you think Coinbase or other companies would ever do that? Um, uh, I, I think that we'll see companies experiment with 
um, you know, uh, more decentralized governance structures um, and more on-chain governance structures um, in the years ahead. Um, I think I'm personally most excited about, well, I, I, yeah, I think I'm personally most excited about people thinking about DAOs as um, a new way of defining governance, um, which can be decentralized or can be centralized. Um, and that new way really being about using software to define governance rather than traditional legalese written by lawyers that's impossible to understand. And so I think some of the experiments that I'm most excited about in the, the kind of years ahead are where people bring the kind of learnings of building companies that we've had for the last you know, 70 to 100 years and then apply those learnings to design new governance systems that run written as software on this platform because I think it's going to enable us to iterate more much more quickly on the way organizations make decisions while not saying we need to let go of kind of all of the history and experience that we have for the last 70 to 100 years of building companies. Um, one one group that I'm, I, you know, I, I've been really impressed and, and inspired by is the folks at Optimism. Um, you know, they have this really interesting governance model that they're starting to design where um, there's just like multiple groups of people that are making different kinds of decisions. Um, and I think that kind of experimentation is, is key for us um, having healthy organizations that, you know, operate 10x better than the organizations that we have today. The, uh, um, I'm, I, I, I'm seeing people pitch me on crazy ideas, like being able to mock up like how a, a functioning court system would work, but like on a blockchain with like due process. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing people experiment with these different like concepts. It's so cool. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And I think it's um, software is uh, 10 to 100 times better platform to experiment with than legal documents. Software is open source in crypto. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh, machine readable. Uh, it, you can borrow other people's code really easily. Um, you don't need a big degree that's very expensive in order to understand and do it. You can just teach yourself. Um, and all of those things mean that building an uh, organization that's defined in software is going to be way easier, way uh, uh, simpler to evolve and grow and improve than defining an organization in complex legalese. Um, so I think that trend of people doing experiments and starting to really define the way they work with others in an organization as software is going to be one of the most important ones of our decade. Oh man, you could say that again. It's so true. Well, well, Jesse, like I really, I really appreciate you taking the time and we covered some amazing topics. We really went deep in a lot of them. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on Untold Stories and teaching us a lot today. And uh, and I wish you the the happy travels and, and have a great weekend. Awesome. Thanks so much, Charlie. This is a blast. Have a great day.